Uh, my name is Jenner Juhas, as Vic kind of already mentioned. I'm a fellow member here at Redeemer Spotsy, as well as I'm one of the elders serving to plant uh, Redeemer Stafford, hopefully later this year. We're going to be continuing our study of Luke, as Vic kind of alluded to. It's kind of been, we've been back and forth on who's preaching, how we're preaching. It's been a, it's been a crazy last couple of weeks. Uh, he asked me about six to eight weeks ago to, to preach this message and continuing on through Luke. So it's going to be a little bit out of order. Uh, we're going to jump to the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21 in Luke. You can go ahead and start turning there now. Vic's going to catch us up with what, what we kind of missed uh, as he continues to preach through the, the book of Luke. But first, as we've kind of already recognized it a little bit this morning, it hasn't been the start of 2022 that most people have kind of hoped for. 2020 and 2021 were kind of crazy years, and we were kind of hoping maybe for a light at the end of the tunnel when 2022 started. But instead, so many of us have been faced with sicknesses. We've had COVID, we've had flu. Nick was up here with the cough, kind of dying on stage as he preached us a message last week. It's kind of hitting us in all different directions. We have, some of us have fears and anxieties that when we go home over the next week, we might lose a loved one. We might lose a family member, a friend. We've been faced with power outages over the last week. People without food, without heat. And some people here still don't have power within the church in our local community. We've been faced with struggles, just normal struggles of, of marriages and getting in the word and spending time together, feeling distant from our own church community. And many other struggles that we've been plagued with already in 2022. Again, it's not the, not the start that many of us have been hoping for. But as it's kind of already been mentioned many times, we hope this time this morning is encouraging to you. It's not about what goes on and what we can get built up from Facebook and Twitter and the rest of the world. Like this is our only hope and this is our encouragement is the local church and the local church body. So we, just ha we hope that this is a refreshing time. And as we dive into God's word, I hope you guys can hear God's word and it's refreshing for you this morning. It brings you encouragement and hope for all that's going on in your lives right now. So as we jump into this passage, the first thing I wanna say is, I struggle with this, this passage so much. I'm not up here to teach you because I have this all together. No one and whoever stands in this pulpit has it all together. No one whoever sings up here who talks to you has it all together. We're struggling with the exact same things that you all struggle with. In fact, in preparation for this sermon, these passages, they convicted me more than I've ever thought they convicted me before in areas that I struggled with with these exact same issues. So as we jump into Luke, I hope that you guys can see what God has had for me as well as what he has for you as we jump into Luke chapter 20, verse 45 through 21, verse 4. So as the tradition of our church, please stand as we honor God's word uh, as we read from Luke. Again, Luke 20, verse 45 through 21, verse 4. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and love the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You all can go ahead and be seated. Sorry for the sniffles. Uh, I'm, I'm good, thank you. Uh, but as you guys can see, we're, we kind of jumped ahead into Luke chapter 20, into 20 and 21. We, we kind of missed some of chapter 20, uh, but Vic's going to catch us back up. But I'm going to give you a quick overview of some of the background. So Jesus has been working toward going to Jerusalem. 
So this is post the triumphal entry to Jesus entering Jerusalem for the last time. He's entering Jerusalem to go to his crucifixion. And Jesus, once he arrived in Jerusalem, he saw how they were acting and what they were doing in the temple. And Jesus goes, and it's the famous scene of Jesus tossing the temples, tossing the tables and clearing out the temple. So the religious leaders are very upset with Jesus at this time. So they're not happy. So they send the scribes in to question him and ask him a whole bunch of different questions so they can catch him in his answers, so they can find ways to punish him and crucify him. So Jesus is in the temple at this point after he's been questioned by the scribes, and he's teaching and speaking to the people and his disciples. So in the midst of the triumphal entry and before Jesus' crucifixion, we get this little pause where Jesus kind of explains two stories and shows his heart in practical ways where he esteems what right living looks like in our lives and in the lives of the people at that time. And I hope this is encouraging to us that we can evaluate our own lives, what we've done in the past of 2021, and as we look to 2022, and how we can evaluate what right living looks like for us. So two stories. The first one kind of talks about the scribes. So who were the scribes? Now, there's definitely some debate on exactly who the scribes were at the time. Uh, We get different glimpses of the scribes from the different Gospels. Uh, They kind of describe them a little bit differently in how Jesus interacts with them. We also get historical accounts of who the scribes were. But one thing we do know, or several things we know, is that they were well-read. They were smart. Jesus referred to them as teachers of the law at the time. They were the law, the, they referred to as lawyers in the gospel. They referred to as legal experts. One thing we do know for sure is they questioned the authority of Jesus. And that's what they're doing right here in the, in the last chapter, all through 20. And even alongside their questioning, Jesus condemned the, the scribes alongside the Pharisees and the Sadducees many times throughout the gospels. They were also dependent upon the gifts of the worshipers and the benefactors of their work for their income. So they didn't get a a required income out of the law. They were just, the excess that was given, that was what they were given to them. So they had a requirement to bring people to bring in money. We'll get to that in a little bit. But Jesus, in this little story, he says in the hearing, well, Luke describes that in the hearing of all the people, Jesus says to his disciples. So he's talking specifically to his disciples, but he's speaking loud enough that the larger audience can hear. So he's speaking to the crowds as well. He wants them to hear these things. And what does he say? He says, beware of the scribes. I don't know about you, but when Jesus says beware of something, I think that should kind of cause our ears to perk up a little bit. Uh, it shouldn't be something that we just pass over lightly. These are stories and these are narratives. And as you read through the Bible, some of the best way we get info about narratives or stories and what the point is, is we look at the words, we look at the actual quotes that are given. And when Jesus says beware, I think we should take pause and understand what he's about to say. What does he say they're doing? So he says they, they do six things that he kind of talks about. The first four, I think they're kind of seemingly harmless. At first glance, you read through them, and you're like, that's not that bad. I'm not going to tell my kid not to hang out with those people because they're doing those four things. The last two are a little bit more pointed, but the whole, all six of them kind of get to the heart of what these scribes are doing. We'll walk through each one little by little. So the first one is it says they walk around in long robes. So at the time, the long robes kind of represented how important you were, how ornate they were, and how long the dress was, how long the the tassels were on the the prayer shawls, kind of signified how important you were. So they were dressing in a way as to bring prominence to themselves. So people would catch their eye at what they were wearing. We kind of see that sometimes in our own day and age. It says they also loved greetings in the marketplaces. I don't know about you, but I'm in the grocery store and someone comes up and says, hi, it doesn't recognize me or I haven't seen it well. It feels pretty good. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, that's not what they were doing. They wanted the praises of people in the marketplaces. They wanted them to recognize who they were and give them a title of praise. They liked to be called rabbi and father and teacher They wanted them to be put on a pedestal because of the praises and the recognition that they were given from the people. Remember, the marketplace is in the public view of the eye, too. There's all kinds of people from all different kinds of areas who are coming to the marketplace. 
It also says they love the best seats in the synagogues. Now, not being up front is not a bad thing. We have a little stage up here for us in our own uh, little church. It's a better place to teach, and you can kind of see everybody, and it's kind of elevated position. There's nothing wrong with that. But what they wanted is they wanted to sit up front here just to be seen by the people. They wanted, <coughs> excuse me, they wanted the people just to see them sitting in a place of prominence. They didn't really care about the ability to teach or to be in a better view to be able to teach the, the people that were watching. They just wanted to be seen by the people. And then it says they, they love the places of honor at feasts. They basically just wanted to sit at the head of the table just to get the honor of sitting at the head of the table and for no other reason to be seen as important. So again, the first four, seemingly not that bad. How they dress, wanted to be seen by people, wanted to be greeted. But then we get to the last two. The fifth one says, who devour widows' houses. At first, I was a little confused at what that means to devour a widow's house. Obviously, they don't go up and just eat the widow's house. Obviously, they're not just going up and destroying their actual physical living location. I even asked a few friends what this, mean, what this meant. And the best answer I could get is it means to take advantage of the widows and what they had. Think of like a modern-day televangelist who's just reaching out via the TV or the news or the radio. Give me your money, and I'll do this for you in return. And they don't do anything in return, and all they're doing is taking the, the money from those who are in need. One commentary said is they would pretend to manage the estate for these widows who had nothing, and then instead of using it for good, they would embezzle the money and use the land for their own personal gain. So taking advantage of those who had nothing else in this world. And then for pretense, they would make long prayers. Long prayers are not bad. To pray long, there's nothing wrong with it. It's where your heart is. Pretense meant here, I had to look it up, it meant it's an, an attempt to make something that is not the case seem true. So all they were doing is why they were taking advantage of widows. They were giving these long prayers with lengthy words and big words to justify what they were doing to take advantage of other people, to make themselves seem more important and more religious and true. So why did Jesus warn about these kind of behaviors? Well, I think these were all calculated actions and behavior to gain maximum exposure and to bring praise from other people. It was all self-focused, and it was all self-absorbed. They were leading people astray by their actions and by their own pride. They were putting themselves in a position above God and above other people. In a nutshell, they were breaking the greatest commandment, and these are the teachers of the law. Matthew 22, 37 through 40 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So everything that they were teaching boiled down to loving God with everything you have and loving the people around you. So they should have known better. And this is not a new commandment. Our relationship with God is always in view of our relationship with others. God actually railed against Israel many times and against the ancient peoples with Is around the time of Israel for these very two things, for putting other things and people above who God was and taking advantage of those people who had less. If you read the prophets, this is many times the reasons that God sent prophets to rail against the people of Israel in Isaiah and Amos and Micah because they put things above God and they took advantage of other people. I don't know about you guys, but I can see this in the workplace all the time. I work in the Marine Corps and there's always people who are trying to do things to put their name out there. <coughs> it's not exclusive to the Marine Corps. It happens everywhere. People are always trying to put themselves in a place to be seen by other men to bring their own praise and their own titles up. And what did Jesus say the consequences for this actions were? Now, this is super scary. The idea of hell is already very scary. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever spend time thinking about it, but for those of us, for those who do not know Christ, the reality of hell is a very scary thing. 
And what does Jesus say the consequences for these actions were of the scribes when they were just worried about themselves? He says they will receive greater condemnation. That should make us pause and think. That's a scary thought. I don't understand completely what this looks like or what this means in eternity, but the Bible's explicit that we will receive greater glory for our actions here on earth when we go to heaven, and they'll be received greater condemnation on earth for our actions here on earth as well. To make us pause and think that because of their pride, again, seemingly innocent things of just putting themselves above other people and taking advantage of other people, which is horrible, Jesus says they will receive greater condemnation. So that's the first story. And second, the first story is all about a people who's all about themselves. They love themselves, their own reputation, solely focused on building themselves up. But then he transitioned to someone whose heart shows what it means to obey the greatest commandment and live a life of sacrifice and obedience to him who's not focused on self-promotion. It's interesting, too, that Jesus actually uses a poor widow for his next example, and that's exactly who the scribes were taking advantage of. So we jump into the next story, and it's, what does it talk about? The offerings were being given at the temple. This is normal. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, it actually says that the offerings and tithes <coughs> excuse me, were supposed to be given at the temple. Uh, this was... They would have been giving the, the temple treasury would have been in what's called the first enclosure of the temple sanctuary. It's referred to as the court of women. It's a public place that allows uh, men, women, and children to gather to give their tithes and offerings. There was 13 chests dedicated to special offerings. And they kind of had a hole at the top that was kind of tapered, so when you put your money in, it kind of made noise as it went down, as well as it prevented people from sticking their hands in there and stealing the money. There was multiple different types of offerings. So sometimes you would come up and you would present your offerings and the priest would take it. He would inspect it to make sure it was genuine, present it to the people, kind of talk about how much you were given and then put it inside the box. And there was others that allowed the individuals themselves to put it inside the box where people could just go in and, and just give their offerings themselves. And I believe that was this situation where the woman just went up and gave her offering herself. But again, there's two different types of people in this story. It talks about the rich. What does it say about the rich? It says that put, they put their gifts into the offering box. I think it's very interesting that Luke and Jesus both note a very generic description of the rich here. They don't give exact detail of how much money they had, how much money they were giving. All it says is they were rich people giving a gift. He doesn't mention anything special about them, but he does say that they contributed out of their abundance, out of their excess. It didn't hurt, nor was their giving sacrificial. Like the scribes, their hearts were still focused on themselves and their worldly promotion to other people, because when they gave money, it would have gone down into the box, and it made a loud noise as the money went down. So the amount of money you gave was also to the public eye of how much was given. So they were saying to me, look how much I've given, and look how much I still have. But Jesus hones in on the poor widow. He says she gave two small copper coins. And again, it's very distinct. Jesus gives a very generic description to the rich. I think it's important that he gives a very specific description of this poor widow. He's honing in on her heart and what she was giving. So it says she gave two small copper coins. At that time, it's about 1 64th of a day's wage, as best as we can guess, of a worker. So in today's time, in case you didn't know, Virginia raised their minimum wage to $11 on January 1st. So if, say if someone works for eight hours a day at $11 an hour, that's $88. 1 64th of that day's wage is $1.37. That can't buy anything really in today's world. Not a gallon of gas. Hardly even buy anything off the dollar menu anymore in any, any fast food restaurant. So $1.37 in our time is all she was given. So I kind of picture these two different people, one walking in with stacks of, of dollar bills with the wrapping on them, you know, hundreds, throw them in an offering box, then have somebody with $1.37 put in an offering box. 
The one sixty-fourth of the day's wage, the two small copper coins, was the smallest offering that would have been able to be given at the time. And Jesus notes that they're copper coins. They're nothing special. They're not the, the precious metals of the time of silver and gold. And these little coins are only about a centimeter in diameter, so they're very small. <coughs> been hard for Jesus to even see as she put them in the box. But what does Jesus say about her? He says that she put in more than all of them. Obviously, monetarily, it's not more. So what does it mean? It means it was more in the cost to the giver, and it was more in the eyes of the Lord because of her heart. It says, out of her poverty, she put in all she had to live on. She had two small copper coins to try and live on, and she didn't even hold back one coin. She gave it all. And the widows were not able to fend for themselves, so she had nothing to live on if she put these two copper coins in there. She had no one to make money for her, and she had no way of making money herself to survive. But yet she spares nothing. It's important to us to note that God, why is this more? It's because God looks at the heart. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, <coughs> For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance. Thanks. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The rich and the scribes were all focused on the outward appearance of how much money they gave, of getting the recognition and the titles from the people. But this poor widow, she was focused on obe obedience to the Lord and honoring the Lord with all she had. Why would she give everything that she had? If that's all she had to survive on. Well, I believe it's because she recognized who God was and he meant more to her than anything. She truly understood what it meant to obey the greatest commandment, unlike the scribes and the rich. She knew that loving the Lord with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength was most important. And she knew that obedience was more important than her own comfort. And she knew that God would provide for her, which we'll get to a little bit more in a minute. Her treasure was not on this earth. The scribes and the rich, they were trying to store up treasures for themselves here on earth. But she was storing up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And she knew where her treasure was, there her heart is also. So what does this mean for us today? How do we take these two stories and apply them to our lives? Up front, most people would think, Jenner, you're asking for money. I'll be honest, that's, that's not the case at all. We'll talk about money in a little bit, but that is not what this is about. Vic already mentioned that money, just we don't want people to come to church for money. That's not the reason we want people to come here. We want them to hear the gospel and the message of who God is. So what do we learn about who God is from this message in a time of so many things going on in our lives? Well, first, it's the transition. From the one story to the second story, we see that Luke notes, Jesus looked up and saw God is observant of all that is going on around us. He knows exactly every single situation that you all are going through. And it's not a drain or a burden on him to know anything. The actions of the scribes, the actions of the rich, the actions of the poor widow, he knew exactly what they were doing and exactly what was going on on the outside as well as what was going on in their own hearts. The snowstorm and the power outages that we faced the last week or so and people are still facing, none of those are a surprise to God the sicknesses we're facing, the illnesses, people who are in the hospital, none of those are a surprise to God. Our poverty or our wealth entering the year, none of that is a surprise to God. He sees all and controls all. I was struggling with this recently at work. I got some news about what my, my next job might look like in six months, and I wasn't happy. So what was my first response? Is I reached out to some friends and started complaining. I'll be honest. That was the first thing I did. And the Lord really convicted me to that was not the right response, and so I went for a run, and while I was running, I saw the sun, and I saw the clouds, and I saw leaves starting to fall from trees. I saw the grass blowing in the wind, 
And God reminded me that he knows the exact height of every single blade of grass. He knows the exact path of every single snowflake that, that fell this last week from the clouds all the way down to the ground. And if he's in control of all of those things, the simple things in my life like a job, does, I mean, he absolutely knows what's going on and he is orchestrating those for his good purpose. Psalm 4017, the psalmist says this. He says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. How encouraging is that? That even though we are poor and needy in our times of distress, the Lord takes thought of us. Of everything going on in the cosmos, the Lord takes the time to think of us. So God is sovereign and in control, and he knows exactly what's going on. And two, God is the provider. I think the widow knew that God was going to provide for her. She knew even if she gave up all of her money, God was going to still provide. Luke 12, Matthew 6 speak on this a lot, that if God clothes the lilies of the field and he supplies the birds of the air, how much more so is he going to supply us? Like I was talking about the leaves and the snow, if he knows exactly what's going on and he's providing for them, how much more so is he going to provide for us as children? We see this every single day, even when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. We should be dependent on God as our provider every single day. The Psalms are filled. If you've ever read through the Psalms, through what's called laments, at the beginning they're just crying out to God, how can I make it throughout this day? I'm crushed. I'm not going to survive the night. There's no hope. But throughout the Psalm you see the transition where the Psalter is expressing victory and glory and praise to God because they trust that no matter the situation that he's going to provide for them. And this just isn't physical provision. This is spiritual and this is emotional provision as well. So many people right now in our congregation probably don't need physical provision, to be honest with you, but spiritual and emotional things that are going on in our lives, God will provide us with a peace that is beyond all understanding. And the other thing that we learned from this <coughs> is that the Christian life is a life of sacrifice. I know we don't talk about things of giving up, but the Christian life does require sacrifice. Some practical applications, again, we're not here to, this isn't my way of saying give money to the church, give all you have. Money is important. If that's where your heart is drawn to and it's all about you and it's promoting you and yourself and your treasures here on earth, it's something significant to think about. But here at Redeemer, I'll be honest, you guys constantly exceed expectations in giving. Nick touched on it last week. We don't even have an offering plate here at the church and you guys continue to exceed giving of all that you have and sacrificing that way. But this is a reminder for us to examine our lives and our hearts to truly see where our, tri our treasures and our priorities are as we enter a new year. I'm sure some of you actually did that. You guys sat down and thought of New Year's resolutions that you could take into account and put them into practice this year. But where do those mostly go to? They go to the bottom line of our checkbook. They talk about our waistline or our jobs and our success of what this year should look like. It's important for us to take dedicated time to think what the Lord has done in our life. So looking at 2021 and being thankful for where he has been sovereign and where he has been in control and provided for us. But then focus on this next year and living the life of the widow and seeing where could we give more time, more money, more efforts in ways that are sacrificial to glorify the Lord. How we can we do that in the church? As again, Nick talked on last year, that emulates Acts 2, 42 through 47. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I'm going to read a quick excerpt from, uh, it's called The Apology of Aristides. Aristides, he, was, uh, he lived in Athens in the first and second century. And he wrote this to the emperor Hadrian in AD 125. And this was his expression to the emperor on why Christianity was spreading so fast among the people of the time. 
He says, if one or other of them have bondmen and bondwomen or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their own way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him in their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their numbers imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no food to spare, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Now this sounds absolutely impossible way for us to live, but I could sit here and tell you, spend hours telling you about all the good acts and service and sacrifice we've seen in this church even over the last week of going to people's houses, helping them out, bringing them food without electricity, taking care of one another, bringing in strangers of 10 off the street to live in your house who are just traveling for vacation. This is a supernatural work, and it takes work every single day to live this way, and it's only empowered through the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you to this way. It sounds absolutely crazy, and it sounds like we can only do this on the mission field if we're being martyred sometimes. We've kind of put that out there. We have missionaries here with this morning who do that, and if some of you are called to that, we encourage you to, to take that step and walk that way. But a lot of us, where the Lord has us today, how do we live this life? To the younger crowd and the teenagers, you don't need more friends and you don't need more likes on Facebook or Twitter to live in obedience to God. You don't have to do it in such a way that people are gonna see your good works and bring your name up and give you title and praise. Your obedience to God, even when no one's watching, is extremely important. To the older crowds, we have examples of that in our church that as they're, they're getting older, their strength is dwindling, they're still serving the Lord with every single thing they have. I think of Mike and Arden who are using everything they have in their old age to glorify the Lord. The one group of people especially, if anyone knows what it means to sacrifice everything for the sake of others without credit or praise or recognition, it's the mothers in the church. Every single day, you're giving up everything that you have for the sacrifice of someone who's not going to give you credit and someone who's not going to give you praise. But I want to encourage you, as Jesus looked up and saw the widow, he sees your obedience and your sacrifice as well as you serve every single day to bring the gospel to those little kids. And if this doesn't make any sense to you, if you're confused on why someone would give up all their time, all their money, all their efforts, for what seems meaningless to the world, it's because your heart needs to see Jesus for who he truly is. If anyone was the ultimate example of giving up everything for the, sake of, for the sake of the gospel. It was obviously Jesus. Philippians 2 says that who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is the ultimate example of sacrificial living and giving everything we have. This should encourage us to live in such a way as well. And again, if you're one of those wondering, why would anyone want to live like this? Or what does it mean that Jesus humbled himself on the cross? 
please come talk to me or talk to Vic or talk to one of the others. We'd love to sit down and talk to you about what it means to be transformed by Jesus and live a life of sacrifice. But for those of us who know Christ and feel compelled to live a life that resembles the heart of the widow, let us take some time just to be thankful first for God's provision and God's sacrifice and God's sovereignty in our own lives that we've seen throughout the last year and just in all these different situations that seem so crazy in our lives. Let us examine where we can live more sacrificially as individuals and as a church in ways that honor God as our ultimate treasure as we go into the next year. Please play with me. Lord, we just come and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us in ways that we can never imagine. We thank you that your word is true and that it doesn't go forth and come back empty. Lord, I thank you for the conviction of my own heart, my own pride, and my own desires to make myself known that you've taught me this year. Lord, we ask that you would just give us a heart that just sees your goodness, that sees your sovereignty in every single situation right now, Lord, of so many things that are going on. And Lord, we also ask that you would just give us more trust and more faith that you are willing to provide and you will provide for us in all situations. Lord, as we enter into a time of communion, Lord, may we see you as the ultimate sacrifice. May we see you as the encouragement of why we can live a life that just gives up everything that we have to live on, Lord. May we see you truly for who you are, and may it transform our lives this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.